Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome back to On The Margin. Uh, I'm joined today by Mr. Teddy Valet. Valley. I should have asked that before. Uh, both both work. Depends on where you are in the world. <laughs> awesome. You're an easygoing guy. If this uh, episode today seems especially well put together, that's because this is actually our second try doing <laughs> this. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, Teddy, thanks so much for joining, man. Um, yeah, good to be here. Before we dive into it, could you just give us kind of like a background on uh, yourself, how you kind of got into and founded um, Per Valley? Perfect. Yeah. So um, I originally started off on the equity side of things, an equity analyst, sort of understanding how companies make their money and what the world's going to look like over the next two, three years, and then just coming back to today. Realized I wasn't really just an equity and value type of guy. Um, didn't want to wait seven years for value to manifest. So uh, I. <laughs> was obsessed with the future and discounting the understanding what the future looked like because I thought in order to have an edge as an analyst I needed to have an idea of what the future looked like so that led me down this whole process of leading indicators so I left that shop to work at two other macro uh, firms um, and then built out effectively a leading indicator process of what growth looks like over the next six to twelve months um, so I founded Prevalley in October of um, 2018 and then have since been been building out the firm, building out the team, um, more of we trade basically stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, um, and now digital assets. So we have a crypto arm, just hired a crypto analyst. Um, yeah. And we've just been you know focused on trade and macro and, and pretty excited about the, the whole macro environment today. Great. Well, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you, aside from your good looks and charm, uh, is you. because you trade so many different assets. Uh, so you've got a great just view of the macro landscape kind of in general. Um, I'd love to actually kind of start with the dollar, uh, with that just being such an important asset. So just starting from like a 10,000 level view, what is your view kind of of where the dollar is at today? Yeah, I think over the uh, longer term time frame, the dollar is definitely going to be lower. Um, the budget, the, the financial situation in the U.S. was just not sustainable at all. Um, and I think the over the past 10 years, we've effectively had so many dollars come to the U.S. because there's been no global growth at all. So annualized growth was about 3.6% on a seven-year annualized number, the lowest ever. Uh, and when you have such a lack of, of growth globally, capital flees to try to find some growth. So they, interestingly enough, they came to the growth tech companies. So uh, no growth in the rest of the world. Everyone piles into the U.S. tech companies. Capital comes to the U.S., highest rates globally, more capital comes to the U.S., um, which causes this feedback loop to right. drive up equities and then drive drive the dollar higher. I think that has effectively changed. Where growth profiles now are more interesting in the rest of the world, uh, and equity markets are more interesting in the rest of the world, the forward returns are way more interesting um, than in the U.S. So I think the dollar, based on that long-term sort of capital flows perspective, likely has... Um, likely has downside. And if you add in also the budget situation, I mean, we were we built out a, effectively a budget model of, of what deficits are going to look like going forward and have a few toggles. And you're looking at, you know, 5 to 6% of GDP per year in this conservative wow. estimate, uh, which is anywhere from, you know, 1.2 to uh, $1.8 trillion uh, per year. Um, and this is just our baseline, base case, not even really adjusting much, which I think you could have some potential upside, especially if you have more stimulus deals or any type of fiscal um, you know, fiscal packages 
Um, so I think, you know, long term that you have some issues short term. There's some interesting opportunities. Um, I think this is the first time in a while you've had some actual old school macro opportunities. And what I mean by that is the growth differentials coming out of COVID are very, very divergent. So for example, right now, the U S I think is the economy is extremely strong uh, and will continue to be strong throughout the next six to nine months, call it. However, China, um, the economy is slowing at a pretty decent pace and they didn't do anything after, uh, after COVID hit, they didn't do any type of stimulus. So you have these policy divergences, growth divergences, and now also because of that, a policy divergence. So the U S is starting to start to talk about, uh, tapering and hiking. And we've gotten some, you know, recent information, um, that the PBOC might be thinking about cutting rates. So you haven't really had these crazy divergences and in Brazil, for example, another one, they've been hiking rates over the past call it two to three months. Um, so you're starting to see some some pretty serious divergences uh, in the macro landscape. So short term, I, I, I find some attractive pairs on the dollar, like dollar yuan. I think the dollar strengthens versus the Chinese yuan. Um, super interesting. And then, but at the same time, I think the Brazilian real uh, strengthens versus the dollar. So there's a lot of macro idiosyncrasies hmm. uh, in, the, in, in the short term. Could you kind of walk me through what that scenario, what would a scenario look like where uh, economic growth in the U.S. actually starts to pick up. The central bank, uh, the Fed, starts to basically taper. But you know, we've kind of started to see, as, as you mentioned, like other central banks, like the PBOC, uh, kind of starts to be uh, lean more dovish. So, what does the scenario look like? We have kind of global central banks easing at the same time where you have the U.S. tightening. And do you think that's a realistic prop- uh, possibility? Yeah, I think I think so. I think specifically with China, definitely. Um, with some of the other central banks, with you know. Like, ECB is probably not going to make a move on the, on the policy side. Um, their growth profiles are decent. However, they're much more exposed to China than we are. So if China's slowing down, that could sort of feed its way through Europe. Um, I think the, the backdrop is is the dollar, you know, effectively having a bid under it um, as capital sort of comes here for growth. Um, and that's this, you know, call it three to five month period, uh, which you've seen recently. Um in some of the dollar strength uh, against some of these individual idiosyncratic things. I think from the first part of your question on what does it sort of look like in the U.S., I think the economic data is still going to be completely strong. Yep. For example, last week, the Bank of America credit card data was up 23% on a two-year rate of change, so no COVID comps, none of that stuff. Two years ago, it's up 23%, which is like, just absolutely, from a macro data standpoint, I've never seen anything like this. And that's through July. This is without any stimulus, right? We had the last checks that we got, and the, uh, the last checks that were basically sent out in the mail were in March. We're now in July. This was July 3rd. It was up 23% on a two-year rate change. Like the numbers are just absolutely the same. So I think the U.S., I don't see that stopping. Um, and one of the things that we've done a lot of work on, everyone's worried about uh, the unemployment benefits rolling off. Uh, and the work that we did on this new child tax credit that kicks in on the 15th of this month is that mm. this is going to actually be 186 to 186 to 200 billion dollars of fresh new capital for families to basically spend, and that's going to be half of all unemployment, not just the extended ones, all current unemployment benefits. So, if you think about the next few months, you could have a situation where, you know, in order to get um, an unemployment benefit, you have to be laid off. So it's contingent on you not having a job. However, to get the child tax credit, you can have a job. 
So everyone coming back in the labor force as these benefits roll off, um, because the jobs are there. There's 9.2 million jobs that are outstanding, um, with the highest number ever. Um, so you have those people come back in, getting income from new jobs that they're now reentering the, the workforce. Um, and then you have the child tax credit. So you could have effectively more income than you have over the past three months. In the past three months, you know, as of July 3rd, 23%. So uh, on two-year exchange, retail sales, just like a credit card spend, absolutely insane. Um, so you could have a situation where growth of the U.S. just continues to rip. And I think policymakers are really missing. I think a lot of people are really missing like the, the strength that is still exhibiting itself in the U.S. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the reason why it almost feels like the market doesn't know where it wants to go uh, at this point is because there's still we're in price action has been super telling recently. And we're kind of in between these two narratives of you've got some very, very compelling evidence that kind of you were just talking about that we're heading towards more secular uh, inflation type regime. But there's also a lot of deflationary forces at work, too. Mm -hmm. So if I could just paint like kind of the the uh, the case for actually deflation uh, mm -hmm. and then and then kind of hear what you have to say. At the same time, it seems like economic growth is kind of picking up. Um, one of the things that I pay attention to when it comes to uh, inflation is just uh, commercial bank lending. And there was this great chart uh, that I can kind of link to in the show notes, which just shows it dropping off a cliff. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, if you saw Wells Fargo the other day, they announced that they were essentially closing out um, individual lines of credit, um, which kind of tells me like you, you really need the you, what you need to see inflation is the M2 uh, money supply going up, right? And mm -hmm. if commercial banks aren't doing it, and if we haven't crossed the Rubicon on the federal government side of things yet, that's not really getting created. And, and at the same time, the velocity of money is really dropping like a stone as well. So do you see kind of inflation despite that? Or, you know, how would you kind of respond to kind of that, yeah. that bear? Couple, yeah, perfect. Couple counterpoints on that. I think the commercial bank lending lags high yield credit spreads by about nine months. So the spreads are now the tightest they've ever been ever uh, in the history of the Republic. Um, so what you're going to see over the next few months is you should see a significant amount of lending from the commercial banking sector, uh, given, the, given the fact that these credit spreads are so tight. Um, uh, another uh, economic data point that I'll point to on that is the percentage of banks willing to lend. Um, now, this is three months old, and what you just said with Wells Fargo could come into that and tighten this a little bit, but percentage of banks that are willing to extend credit on, uh, from a, for a credit card perspective um, is the easiest it's ever been. And I think that we had a, a revolving credit report that came out today that was the largest number. I, don't quote me on this, but I believe I saw the headline that was a huge number on revolving credit, which would comport and uh, effectively um, validate that uh, the banks are still, um, that lending is still very, very um, easy. So the commercial stuff typically lags, so I would, I would try not to focus on that yet. Um, it's really focused on high yield credit spreads. If you see high yield credit spreads start to tighten um, and widen out, then that's a problem for lending overall. Um, I think though on the, you know the deflation debate, I think longer term there's some structural issues right that you can't not address. Um, you know the demographics, the amount of debt that we have, um, technology, things that ultimately hold down the rate of inflation, but. What I think people miss on the inflation side is that a lot of inflation has to do with the dollar. Um, everyone loves to talk about the 70s and what crazy stuff that was going on in the 70s. However, uh, to me, a large driving force was that the dollar went down 20 to 30%. Um, and if you have a progressive slow decline in the dollar, the 
price of everything else, uh, given that the dollar's price, that the commodities are priced in dollars, um, rises. So I think if you have, I think we're entering that sort of longer term bear market in the dollar, which um, could, you know, it's not going to be seventies inflation, but you could have, you know, one to one and a half points higher than what we've had in the past decade. And also on the fiscal side of things, um, we haven't, the past 10 years, like I was saying before, we've been doing austerity. The world's been doing austerity. Europe right. was tightening their budgets. Japan didn't do anything. The U.S. consumer was deleveraging their balance sheet. That completely flipped. The U.S. consumer balance sheet is the cleanest it's ever been. Japan just passed an $800 billion stimulus program. And Europe uh, has a $900 billion stimulus program um, that hasn't even started yet. That starts next year, for the next two years. So you have these fiscal drivers you know, it's not going to be gangbusters uh, growth, but it's something that we have not had for the past 10 years. That's a totally different change in the economic landscape. Um, for me to be really worried about inflation, um, I think you need to just see basically no more stimulus, no more fiscal stuff. Um, and I still think it's way too early to to say that we're, we're going into sort of a, a lower inflation environment. The one thing that I would, that seems to be highly debated right now is that the rate of change of growth is slowing. Right. I mean, that's, a, it's impossible for that not to slow. Uh, so I don't even know why this is a debate. Like if you have this crazy comp that you're comping last year, it's impossible for that not to slow. So naturally we're clearly going to be slowing, but the analogy I like to make is if you have hundred dollars in earnings and you make a, it grows to two hundred dollars. It's a hundred percent growth rate. But then it grows another hundred dollars again. That's another fifty percent growth rate. That's hundred to three hundred dollars in earnings power. But the growth rate's slowing. I mean, three hundred bucks is like that's a huge amount of growth, even if it comes down. So that's sort of what the economy's, I think, is going to look like. Where you're going from, you know, up to potentially thirty percent nominal GDP this year to six next year, five, which is still significantly above the past decade, um, off a higher base too. So. That that thesis I have, I have some tough tough times with, but it seems like it's pretty prevalent right now in the market. Yeah. So, what are the implications of if we actually do end up making that shift to secular inflation? As you mentioned, kind of the last period where inflation was something to worry about in U.S. markets, at least, was like the '70s, right? So, basically, you have an entire generation of investors uh, and traders who have actually never really had to contend with that. So, I guess. Let's, let's start on kind of a high level in terms of like asset allocation. What are some of the big rotational shifts that you see if we move into that kind of secularly inflationary environment? Yeah, I think it's out of U.S. US stocks. Um, you know, 70% of the U.S. market is in deflationary defensive stuff. So tech, uh, utilities, healthcare, staples, um, and into areas of the world and sectors that benefit from actual economic growth. So Latin America, uh, potentially parts of Asia, which are struggling right now. Um, Europe, um, which is very sickly oriented and actually side note, um, I just did some work on global GDP. Europe is actually the largest swing factor on global GDP. So for example, the largest uh, dollar slowdown that China's ever had was about a trillion dollars, but Europe has had a, a $3 trillion swing in, in their, in their economy. So they're actually a huge driving force, um, on the global landscape from a cycle perspective, which side note, I thought it was just interesting. I just did some work there. Yeah. Um, so, um, overall, you know, I, I still think the, 
the forces are, are still still strong on, on, on a potential slowly higher inflation backdrop, not crazy 70s inflation, but um, you're, you're not going to want to be in equities uh, in, in the U.S. for sure. Um, and you're not going to be in bonds either because I don't think bonds are going to do too well. Um, parts of the commodities markets should do well. Um, and then, you know, crypto is super interesting. And it, 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 I think it's yet to sort of prove us an inflation hedge um, in the sense that, like, CPI inflation, I think it protects you on inflation from currency debasement. Um, but I don't know if it fully hedges you from from a CPI going to 4%. Um, but from the currency debasement piece, it makes a ton of sense that we are going to have to print a ton of money uh, because of the budget deficit, amount of Social Security, Medicare that we have to pay out going forward, that the only thing that's going to really hold this value in this new inflationary or currency debasement environment is some type of finite supply crypto uh, asset or maybe multiple. So let's kind of break some of that down. Uh, so let's talk about bonds first and kind of what a rotation out of bonds would look like. One of the things that people pay a lot of attention to or is gaining more coverage right now is just real rates, uh, mm-hmm. which on the 10-year right now are pretty fairly negative, right? Mm-hmm. So if, I mean, where do you see real rates going, which are, by the way, nominal minus uh, CPI inflation? So where do you see real rates going and how do you see the impact on, on bonds in general if, those, if they persist as being negative? Yeah, I think, I think real rates go a lot higher. Um, Short term, short term, and that's primarily. So this is like a six month view. I mean, long term, they probably go deeply negative, um, or more negative than they are. But I think short term they could go positive from negative ninety basis points. I think they were today. Um, the the negative ninety basis points, the lowest, close to the lowest ever it's been on ten year real rate, is effectively saying there's a zero to five percent probability that we have any economic. So basically describing no probability to that. It's a real economic growth. Um, I've laid out and sort of thinking of the backdrop is one of the, the strongest economic growth environments we've had in over a decade, um, and maybe two decades. So the fact that to me to have the market saying there's zero, zero to 5% probability of that is to me is pretty crazy. Um, and I think inflation in the near term is likely going to be contained because of the slowdown that's happening in China. China's mm-hmm. credit, his impulse and, and credit in general is, is, is decelerated. It's not a full slowdown like we've seen in 15 into 16 or in 2013. Um, but it's a slow, it's a, it's, a, it's a sharp enough decline that it takes some air out of sort of the break-evens. Um, so you have the break-evens coming down at the same time that we're flat the same time that I think U.S. growth and nominal rates go up, which is sort of a double whammy for real rates. Um, and you're already starting to see that in the price of gold, which is um, basically, if you run a regression on it, gold is saying that real rates should be at negative 60 basis points, negative 55, um, versus negative 90. So gold is already pricing in a lot of this tightening. Um, and I, I don't think you're going to have a huge overshoot in inflation. Uh, I think where people are going to miss it is on more of the nominal growth side the real growth side right. um, over the next few months. Longer term, I think we're probably going to have issues with with the interest expense of the U.S. government um, and just rates overall from rising. So, you know, maybe there's some type of cap that comes in or yeah. just, they're just not able to rise given um, the amount of debt that we have. Um, so in that situation, 
with continued fiscal and the lower dollar, real rates would really would go much lower. Um, yeah. So I hate this. I hate this when people give like the short term, long term thing, but um, like short term bearish, long term bullish that thing. But uh, I think short term, I think tips go lower, real rates go higher, and then long term they probably trend steady trend lower. Yeah, absolutely. Can you actually help define for me? When you say economic growth, can we just be really explicit about what that yeah. means? Like, what are the yep. metrics that you're kind of paying attention to? Because obviously, clearly, uh, at least the folks at the central bank are kind of paying attention to Nothing. how's the market doing, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say the stock market. Yeah. But like, yeah. when you say, you know, economic growth, what are you kind of specifically talking about? So typically when I say that, I'm talking about nominal GDP um, or sort of retail sales or consumption, which is right. the majority of, of the U.S. US uh, economy. But what I'm saying, economic growth is typically nominal GDP. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so I guess if I was a central banker and I was trying to poke holes in your theory, I might say something like, hey, there's this very well-documented effect called the wealth effect. And actually, it's there's like a 70% correlation that when stocks are going up, that means more people are spending money, so GDP should go up. So there's this kind of inherent link in between what's happening in the stock market and quote-unquote real growth. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Do you see them as being... Separate, like, how are we going to have a, a high growth environment when the stock market isn't doing well? Yeah, I think it's a ri- ridiculous um, policy agenda from the Fed, but it's actually, I've, I've, I've run the numbers and actually the household wealth, the change in two year rate of change of household wealth has like a 70% R squared with six month forward growth. So we've seen, the, <laughs> we, yeah, we've seen the largest increase in household. It's up twenty seven trillion versus two years ago. The like the amount of household wealth that just happened over the past two years, even a year, is just insane, which leads GDP by six months, which is implying that GDP nominal GDP could be eleven and a half percent based on the historical relationship. So I I think them trying to you know, make things go crazy, uh, to to effectively drive spending is absolutely ludicrous. Um but the data behind it is says that that actually does happen. However, the downside and sort of the unintended consequences of that is if you get it too hot and then you pop a bubble, that's when you actually get deflation. That's if the equity market gets crushed, then that situation basically goes in the inverse. Yeah. People aren't spending; it's going down and down again. Um, I, I would just, add to that as well that the the other downside there is economic inequality. I feel like yeah. I'm always bringing it back to that, but I feel like that's one of the biggest problems that we also. We also absolutely, have. absolutely. Um, so you know, if, if the equity market keeps just going straight up, uh, then we're gonna have problems, more problems on the economic front, uh, equality front. Um, so you know, the Fed's like, yeah, we can't find anybody that we have no idea why this is the disparity is getting larger. It's like, dude, like, come on, man, you guys are the, the primary cause. Like, take a seat, get out of here. What's going on, everyone? Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is, they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield 
Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All of those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do, very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So, for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. Okay, let's get into uh, kind of the equity side of this. A little while ago, I was listening to an interview you did back in May um, of last year uh, when times obviously felt a little bit more... uh, hectic than they do mm-hmm. now. And you said that one of the thing, the observations that you had about the equity market was that they basically completely stopped discounting future events. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you still think equity markets are behaving that way? And talk to us a little bit about your, your kind of outlook on, let's say, U.S. equities uh, yeah. specifically. Yeah, I, th- I think they do. I think they have a much harder time discounting, um, discounting things and are much more liquidity driven. So the amount of excess cash that's in the system can completely counter any type of economic growth um, front. So we did a study on the correlation between emerging markets and um, raw industrial commodities. So commodities that are actually influenced by traders or speculators. These are on the ground things that that trade hand to hand between buyer and and seller. Historically, those two have been unbelievably correlated. And for the past two to three years, the correlation broke down significantly. Meanwhile, the correlation to liquidity went up significantly. So um, I think they, the, the, the equity markets ha- are having, and it probably has something to do with this, with the passive investing, um, where they're buying at any price and just constantly allocating to, to equities. But they, they do not discount events or sort of changes in a lot of the economic landscape at the headline level. I think in, internally, like some of the relative ratios, call it uh, financials relative to utilities, yeah, um, do a decent, do a very good job still. But if you look at a headline equity indice, they, they have a very difficult dis- time discounting basically the future. It just and then it will reprice within you know ten fifteen percent within a couple of weeks. An yeah. example that I gave was like during COVID. Italy locked down, I think, and we were hit an all-time high. And it's just like, if, you, if you're doing any work and you're looking at what happens and what's going on in China, where they're welding people into their houses, and then you see Italy that's completely locked down the country and we're hitting an all-time high. Like, how is that not at all discounted in the market? And then within a month, right, we repriced like 30%. So I think the, the, the equity markets... Um, and it also, I believe, has something to do with the real rate uh, equation. So as real rates go lower, right. people are willing to pay more, um, pay more for equities. Um, so if, for example, tech. If you look at uh, growth stocks and the software index, 
the price to sales correlation, the multiple between real rates and price to sales of growth equities is 96%. So it's literally your whatever way real rates go, that's where tech's going to go. And because tech becomes such a large part of the market, when you have a slowdown or real rates coming down, people piling into tech, which is probably causing the index to sort of take flight. Um, and that that's probably also why with a lot of liquidity causing real rates to come down, which is then uh, leading to people piling into these low growth deflationary sectors. Um, and then the equity market just trends and now goes sort of beat off the way that it keeps going. Um, your question on where do I sort of see things? Um, the scenario I laid up before is that real rates are potentially going to go much higher. And if they go much higher, I think the, the equities are not going to do well at all. Um, mm. There'll be parts of the equity market on a relative basis. I still like energy. Um, I've liked energy for like a year or so. Um, it probably needs to give off a little steam, but energy relative to technology, I'll take that trade any day. Um, I think overall the equity market does is, is pretty frothy. Um, and the opportunity that I still think is outside the US. Um, yeah. And we're, it's not as clear um, right now as it was probably a few months ago, but I th- I, right now I'm not a, not a huge fan of, of the US equity market. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one thing, uh, our, our mutual friend Tyler Neville, he did this great interview with Russell Clark, uh, mm-hmm. and I wish I could say this was my own idea that I'm passing off as his, but I'll relay uh, basically what he said, and I would love to get your take on it. So basically, he, he kind of put this idea out there that actually specifically tech is behaving in a pretty rational way. And the reason being because right now tech is essentially dominated by monopolies. Mm-hmm. So as long as those monopolies exist, there is a very realistic possibility that a company like Slack is going to be acquired by Salesforce for whatever it is, 20 times sales, right? Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like this idea, you know, everybody learned back in the dot-com bubble that, hey, there's this very powerful idea of mean regression. And if you buy a company at 10 times sales, that's probably a bad idea. Whereas now there's actually a very rational reason that exists out there in the market why buying at 10 times sales is a good idea because there's a very proven precedent um, that that someone else is going to buy it for 20 or 25 times sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're a snowflake, you're going to, the market's going to buy it at a hundred times sales. Um, I'm always picking on snowflakes, sorry, snowflake, <laughs> but like, that's ridiculous. Um, so I'd be curious to get kind of your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I think it really relates to just the, it's a macro trade also. Um, it relates to the macro environment. So if, if growth over the global growth overall is really crappy, and people and there's a lot of liquidity. People are going to be willing to pay that 20 times sales for Snowflake or whatever it is, right? Versus the 10 times. However, if you have a tightening or higher real interest rates, I, I have very high conviction that you're not going to be willing to pay that that same price. Which is also we can prove with the data that given the correlation with the multiples. So the business model might continue to do well. I have no problem with the business model. Actually, I think a lot of these companies have some of the best business models in the world, but the multiple in which investors pay for those businesses, I think gets re-rated. And when you have higher real rates, less liquidity overall, um, that that analysis and, and sentiment towards what you pay for something completely flips. And we haven't really seen, over the past three, four years, we have not seen. So I think the high end, actually I know when the high end, the high end uh, interest rates was um, October of um, 2018. Actually, when I started the firm, 
and since October 2018, we've gone to one direction. So we haven't really had any alternative data points of, for example, higher real rates to, to counter um, that view. But I, I, I suspect that if I'm correct on where real interest rates go over the next six to nine months, that the multiples of these companies are not going to be the same. Hmm. So higher real interest rates as well uh, would, would be good for gold, which is something I know you've talked about as well. So I guess when you start looking at uh, the yellow rock, as they call it, uh, if you think uh, real interest rates are trending higher, or is there yeah. a better place to put your money? I think um, I think longer term gold makes sense. Um, it's already pricing in a, a lot of the tightening on the interest rate front. If I di- if I wasn't so confident in economic growth picking up, um, mm. then I would say gold super attractive. Um, yeah. But right now I'm sort of on the sidelines. Just I'd rather have Bitcoin versus gold. All right, that's a perfect segue into our last uh, asset class here, which is Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you are kind of one of the earlier um, sort of macro shops to really move into this space, I guess, of Bitcoin. So what was it about kind of the narrative um, that really kind of grabbed hold of you? So like what initially got you thinking of it as a legitimate macro instrument and how are you kind of viewing uh, Bitcoin or crypto as an asset class now? Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, the, I'll give Dan Tapiero the credit. Uh, I did dinner with Dan and the whole, he was just on his phone the whole time, like, look at this. This is just, look at this. And he said to me, everyone in this room has no idea um, what crypto is. However, everyone in this room knows what a hedge fund is. 10 years ago, no one knew what a hedge fund was. Maybe 10, 20 years ago. And 10 years from now, everyone in this room is going to know what crypto is. So, you know, that was initially sort of the seed that um, got me starting to think about crypto. Um, Dan's so great. He... One, one day, man, I'm going to start a podcast. It's like after the podcast because all the best stuff actually gets said right after the podcast. Ends. Yeah, right. And he did this. He had this quote. He's like, he's like, what are these macro guys? What are they even talking about anymore? What are you talking about? Like the like the real or something? And he's like, yeah, he, yeah. he's just so bullish. And it's yeah. his, his, his pedigree is insane as well. Crypto, so it's just really think, entertaining to hear it come from him. Crypto is macro, I think, is, uh, was his line. Um and then I, you know, I started looking into it more, and I've been trading it um, leading up to that. And then, uh, then when COVID hit, like it really hit me. Like, right. there, the the what's going on on the fiscal side? I think I, I personally think we pulled four like five years of monetary policy and yep. fiscal policy, right? Like, if we did not have COVID and the economy started to slow and the Fed couldn't raise rates, then they would have been like, oh, let's do some fiscal spending. Then like slowly do small amounts of fiscal spending and then right. five years and people were like, oh, Bitcoin, you know, it just happened like that. And I think we pulled those five years forward and which makes that part of the digital asset ecosystem, the, the coins with finite supply, very interesting um, given where I think the world's going to continue to go. Um, and unfortunately, there's really no way out of this forward progression of the budget deficit, sort of the, the, the macro backdrop that we have. Um, and it's only going to get worse, and especially if we do larger and larger amounts of fiscal, which I think is the only iteration, is sort of the new iteration of monetary policy. Because if you can't lower, lower rates anymore and you go into a slowdown, what do you do? You either go into depression and the stocks just keep going lower or you likely do some type of fiscal and sort of get things going again. So you have these spurts of economic growth, and that is not good for the budget deficit. That is not good for dollars, the amount of dollars that need to be printed. So, you know, 
the work that we've done on in and then so then I started get really getting into it, understanding it, understanding the technology, and then it, it, I started applying our macro sort of thought process to the asset itself. And it turns out that Bitcoin has the bit or crypto in general, but primarily Bitcoin has the uh, it's the most returns during highly liquid, positive liquidity environments. So mm. the three liquidity cycles that we've seen since 2010, 2011, crypto, Bitcoin's gone bananas. During negative liquidity cycles, however, uh, it's traded down significantly or, or effectively flat. So all the returns have come from these positive liquidity cycles, which I thought was super interesting um, from a macro standpoint. And then after you get on Bitcoin, right, you start looking at ETH. And then after you look at ETH, you start looking at you know DeFi um, and then basically other parts of the ecosystem. So now we're really focusing on other parts of the ecosystem. But from a macro perspective, you know, Bitcoin um, in a portfolio to protect against the craziness of these guys that are not recognizing that there's any type of financial inequality and looking around um, is, a, is, is a phenomenal protection against that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Do you th- when you think of store value almost as a trade, do you think of that, I, I know you're more of a short-term trader, but um, or short to midterm, but uh, do you think of store value as almost a permanent trade? And what I mean by that is, uh, assets like gold, Bitcoin, that's supposed to protect against negative real rates. That's why there's that inverse correlation, right? When you think about kind of the history of financial or monetary crises, there, there's a book actually that my computer is sitting on right now by Ray Dalio, Big Debt Crises. And he does these great studies, right? And he, he talks about kind of, he's got like 50 different case studies of when governments or nations have really gotten into a lot of trouble. They debase their currencies, etc. What always happens at the end is they always find a way out of it. Right. So while it certainly seems like we're headed towards some sort of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, national insolvency, bubble and sovereign debt, whatever it is, historically, we tend to figure these things out. Um, and that's why over a very long period of time, while gold has this very necessary place, it hasn't performed as well as other cla- asset classes like, uh, you know, bonds, equities, real estate, etc. So when you think of store value, whether it be gold or Bitcoin, do you see that? Do you see there being a permanent, enduring need for that in markets? I think in today's, uh, I think in the macro environment today, absolutely. Um, it's not going to trade on that um, over six, maybe 12 month time frame, but over a longer term time frame, right? If you look at the returns of Bitcoin since inception, it's mm-hmm. been unbelievable. Um, so over a longer term time frame, I think it does provide store value. However, you know, classic classic market participants would be like, how does it go down ninety percent, and how's that a store value? Um, but it, the the store value to me is protection against excess dollars or just more dollars that are being put into the system, um, which to me seems like a very one way bet. And also the Fed um, doing this crazy. Um, basically quantitative easing. Um, it's a protection against, over the long term, against the craziness of the crazies, of the right. academics and the PhDs. Yeah. Um, and um, I think it definitely fits in, into a portfolio um, and should be over a longer term period, but you have to size it right because it's somewhat of a volatile asset. Yeah. 
<laughs> the volatility aspect is very interesting. The one, there are plenty of very valid criticisms, I think, about Bitcoin, but the one I've really never been able to stomach uh, super well is just the volatility because the it's too volatile to be a store value. Because if you look at Bitcoin over almost any time period longer than six months, one year, three year, five year, 10 year, mm -hmm. it has outperformed almost every other um, asset class. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at it from anything longer than a one year period of time, which you'd really ideally, that's why you'd want a store of value, right? Because um, ins it's insurance that you want in a very short period of time. Like it kind of does fit that definition. Yeah, and I, also, I would also add that it's the it, the return relative to the volatility is also greater than every other asset. So even though people say volatility, the return that you get for that volatility is the sharp ratio is over. I think it's one three, one point three, um, which is greater than basically every other asset class too. Yeah. Um, so it comes down to a sizing thing. Yeah. So speaking of the volatility, I'd love to get your perspective on how you trade an asset class that this volatile. Because actually, Dan Tapiero uh, was like the third guest on this podcast, and he was basically like, "Look." In an asset this volatile, it's so, so difficult to trade because if you're just out of the market on the wrong day, then mm -hmm. you miss so much of the potential upside. Uh, and I know you love uh, to trade. Uh, so talk to me a little bit, like how do you think about moving in and out of this asset class? Do you kind of have a core position that you manage? Do you trade a little bit? Do you move yeah. all in, all out? Like how do you manage that? Yeah, so I, the way I sort of like think about it is, I say, okay, I think it's gonna be a fixed part of the portfolio. And then sizing that. So of the crypto allocation, I'd say 50% is Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, and the Bitcoin allocation, we're primarily trading. Mm -hmm. um, so when things got really frothy and gets a little crazy, and our trading models are like, when I'm in Miami and there's barges saying buy crypto, and when I'm taking coming home from Miami <laughs> and the Uber driver has his own phone separate from the main phones for Dogecoin, that's when I take size that that down a little bit. Um, the other fifty percent are individual tokens that I think almost like of like value investments. So I want to own these for the next five years um, and just sit on those. Do not trade those. Um, something that has strong tokenomics that are interesting to me, um, and then sizing up and down sort of the Bitcoin and ETH positions based off of liquidity, based off of sort of sentiment, what's going on. Uh, based off the charts, uh, some of our trading models, that type of thing. Yeah. I'd be curious because one of the things that I really appreciate the way you talk about macro in general is like putting growth at the center because to me, that's where, that's the most important story across a whole bunch of different narratives. And mm -hmm. for me, just kind of living and breathing and being in crypto, there's real natural organic growth happening here. And in traditional financial markets, I mean, people love to put point at central banks and say, hey, this is your fault. Look at what you're doing, debasing the currency. They wouldn't be doing that if there was real genuine growth happening, right? right? And you can you can make a powerful argument that they're actually making it worse by adding debt and printing currency, et cetera. But like they wouldn't be doing what they're they're trying to prop the system up essentially because there isn't genuine growth that's actually mm -hmm. happening. So I really don't think it's totally fair to point the finger at them. But in crypto, there's a lot of bona fide genuine growth happening. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's kind of the store value. Um, narrative around Bitcoin that has kind of taken taken hold. I've actually never heard you talk about ETH. So are you kind of looking at other crypto use cases uh, or other crypto assets? Like, how do you look at the other space, the space beyond just, just Bitcoin? Yeah, I think um, yeah, ETH is super interesting um, from a build out of basically effectively anything. What I love about X or Bitcoin is like, if you can envision it and think it, you can 
building. So you have basically a, a, a painting, and you can paint whatever you want, however you want, in any way, um, because of the technology. So I'm looking for um, paintings that are super interesting to me. Um, so, for hmm. example, things that are going to be around that have tokenomics that we can actually value, like Sushi Swap, for example, which pays out five um, bips of every transaction to the token holders. You could say, okay, given the amount of revenue that uh, and volumes that the the token generates, what does this look like going forward? Therefore, what is the trade on the price to sales basis or under a dividend discount model or something like that? And you can actually say this is. If, for example, it trades in line with Uniswap um, or with the New York Stock Exchange, this is sort of where to trade. Um, so finding individual use cases like that that are super interesting. Um, ETH, you know, um, is unbelievably interesting just because of what's being built on top of it. Um, I think there's other sort of later ones that are also super interesting. Um, and I think there'll be multiple. I don't think there's going to be an individual sort of winner takes all. Um, so the other part of the space, I think honestly, some of the other parts of the space are even more interesting than Bitcoin itself. And what I worry about- Me with, too, man. Me too. What I worry about potentially with Bitcoin is, you know, why can't, it's, it's the OG, but why couldn't someone create the exact same code and call it you know, TedCoin? Uh, and then everyone has faith in TedCoin. It's the exact same thing. And that's what I worry about sometimes with, with Bitcoin. Um, where something it could basically unseat it, or any or anything sort of in the in in the space, hmm. given that it's all open source. So that's something I think about a lot. Can I present an alternative viewpoint to that? Because I also Please. think. So, we mentioned yeah, or I was just talking about basically. If you look over a long enough time period, gold actually tends to underperform almost every other major asset class. And I saw this chart on Twitter, and I was like, why is anybody owning gold? Yada yada. And then I kind of sat down and thought about it and said. Actually, that's kind of how it should be, because if gold is a true international form of money, right, sovereign, sovereignless form of money, money should underperform every other asset class, right? You want productive asset classes that have a higher rate of return than gold, uh, because money is like the hurdle rate, essentially, that's the, the cost of capital. And that's how I kind of see Bitcoin. I think it has done a phenomenal job at creating money, being a form of money. But if you're looking out 20 or 30 years into the future, you don't really want your form of money to have a higher return than all of these other different types of assets. Mm. And if you look at gold, the unique role that it has in the financial system, it's the thing that everyone trusts, right? Mm -hmm. And finance in general is made up of all these like relationships that get reinforced by traders and people believing it's true. I don't think you're ever going to win that in the traditional. I don't think Bitcoin will ever actually win that from gold. But I think there's this new crypto economy that's being created and all of those relationships are still up for grabs. And Bitcoin has now won the store value in the crypto economy. So my personal viewpoint is that DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, all this stuff that is really far off. And I think it is really far off, but it should be and, you know, 10 orders of magnitude larger than Bitcoin because you're actually creating an entirely new organization structure for an economy and you don't Absolutely. want the real money supply to be that much of that honestly mm -hmm. it's kind of a failure if it is to be and honest. i would i would add another point to that is the size of the asset as the size of the asset grows the return profiles you know uh, go lower yeah. so that's also tied back to equities why i'm worried about sort of the u.s equity market over a longer term period the amount of 
right now it's about 35% of U.S. balance sheets are tied up in equities, which is the largest that it's been. So if everyone's already owning it and it's already such a big percentage of the market itself, then how do you have higher returns going forward? So Bitcoin right now is such a large asset relative to everything else that the return profiles likely look a lot different. I mean, they're going to be right. phenomenal, but relative to some of these smaller things that are emerging, that are growing, um, that Bitcoin probably allowed for them to have this sort of growth trajectory um, through its through basically being invented. Um, you know, that type, that stuff is unbelievably fascinating. If you could go up you know, 10x in a couple of weeks, like we saw yeah. earlier this year. All right. Well, we're, we're nearing the end of our time here, and I actually want to give you the opportunity to plug uh, Prevalley a little bit. I, I got to give you credit. I think you guys have done the best branding job of any fund I know. Macro is back. If you go to any other fund, it's like investing with care or some like meaningless <laughs> nonsense, and you're just like, boom, macro is back. So we actually, we actually rebranded it again to call it Macro 2.0. So macro is back. I, I love it, but it, made, it implied that macro died. And I think macro's always been here, but people just haven't been doing it correctly. Um, and this new thought process I'm creating or that we've created is macro 2.0, which traditional macro funds only do well during, typically allocators would allocate to a macro guy um, because he was uncorrelated from the rest of the book. And during volatility events, they would do well, and that's where sort of the macro guy fit. To me, macro 2.0 is taking advantage of both growth up like we're talking about growth cycles and growth down cycles mm. and sort of forecasting where those things are going to go and then choosing because you're a macro guy you can choose any asset class I can go all the way down to the individual security if I want so being able to take advantage of both sides of the cycle um, and then the next iteration is basically 2.0 sort of like tech um, is the cryptocurrency component having a, a sleeve of, of the fund that we can trade in crypto and protect against potential currency debasement, but also take advantage of a lot of this, the, the new age of the economy. That's super interesting. Um, so that's even the next iteration of the branding is the Macro 2.0, um, where you take it. advantage of both cycles and you have the digital asset component to, to stay on par with the current macro environment. So if people want to find out more about you, your fund, what's the best way to do that? Just call me. Um, if you go to prevaliglobal.com, um, you can reach out to us, uh, info at Provada Global, or um, I believe my uh, uh, the, the office phone's on there, so give us a ring. Awesome. All right, Teddy, this has been a ton of fun, my friend. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. We'll have to Thank talk you. again soon. Yeah, it's fun. Talk to you soon. Take care.